Good morning, First Church. Glad you could be here and everybody watching too. We're going to get in some worship. So those of us that are here, we can stand.
we do pray that that would be the song and the cry of our hearts um, in a time where um, it might not be easy to sing those things. It might not be easy to sing about how you're a good father. It might not be easy to, to sing about all the goodness that you've done when it's um, far more easy to see all the bad that's going on. And so um, we thank you for the truth that we can find in your word that allows us to lament these things and allows us to see things um, like David reminding his soul um, to hope in you. And so God, we pray and ask that you would help us, Holy Spirit, that you would help us um, find our hope in you. God, would you teach us more about who you are, um, not only in the good times, but even more so in the bad times and in the times of questioning and there being more questions and answers and our lives just looking differently and our routines looking differently and relationships and even being around other people looking differently, God. Um, we, we thank you that you are the same, that you are a constant, um, that we can trust in when it seems like everything else is just a mess. And so we, we thank you for these truths that you are a shepherd who defends us, that, that bad times um, are in fact guaranteed. Um, they're not, a life without difficulty is not promised, God, but we thank you that your presence is promised in the valleys and um, even on the mountaintops. Um, we thank you that you are a father, that you're good, that you're a provider, that you're a shepherd, um, and so many other things. God, would we each individually be reminded of your attributes and what is true of you and how they're all true all at the same time and that you are never changing. So all of those things are always going to be true to capacity. And so um, thank you for this time that we've been able to gather and worship some here and some um, online. And so um, I just pray that you would be so present. We know that you are. Just pray that we would be more aware of your presence as we go about these days, just trying to figure out um, how to manage them, and God, would you draw us closer to you, and would you draw people who um, aren't yet of your fold um, to you as well through this time, and we, we thank you for all that you've done and all that you will continue to do. We trust you, God, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this is a time where usually we take a break, and uh, for the people who are watching from home, you can go get a cup of coffee and grab another donut or something. For everyone else who's here, you can't. And so that's uh, actually this morning in the first service, I got booed at that point by someone. Your pastor, this man of God, I can't believe they would boo me over coffee and donuts. Actually, I can't believe that because they're so important. But we're going to just uh, take just a minute. We're going to rearrange the stage for, for the live stream, and then we'll come right back on. Thanks. Hey, everybody. Welcome back uh, from wherever you went in your living room. For the rest of you, thanks for staying. It's always a worry. <laughs> what if everybody leaves? Um, we're going to look at something. I, I was thinking about this last week. I spoke on James chapter 1, and... Uh, talked a little bit about it at the end of the chapter and how much I love that passage because I feel like it's a powerful passage. And, uh, <clears throat> and then I was thinking about this because, I mean, you guys know um, that, that originally Scripture didn't have verse, you know, verses or paragraphs or chapters or anything like that. So James chapter 2 really just keeps right on going from James chapter 1, and they're, they're linked in the, in the thought process of James and so I wanted to, after last week, I wanted to speak on James chapter 2 at the beginning of the chapter. But I want to review last week what we talked about. We talked about receiving the word with meekness, in humility, in meekness, receive the word implanted, he says, that is able to save your souls. What is he telling them? He's telling them something that's very important. He's first of all saying there's humility involved with the word of God. He's saying, this is the power that saved your soul. This is the power that will change you. If you yield to it, it will change you. We have to allow it to work. But receiving the word humbly means that we yield to its authority. Even if we don't like it, we yield to its authority. We acknowledge <clears throat> that there is an authority that is greater than us. This is what he was talking about in James 1, 19 to 21, about in humility receiving the word implanted which is able to save your soul. And then last week, as we looked at that, the next question was, okay, so how do we do this? 
right? What does it look like to humbly yield to the Word of God? Because for all of us, we all have this common problem. We have these things that we say, this is what I believe. But then we have over here what we actually do sometimes and how those two things don't always line up. And James is asking the obvious question that people struggle with, how do I make them line up? Right? If I'm going to humbly yield to the Word, how am I going to get these two to be together so that I, what I say I believe is what I do? And James says, here's the key. The key is you have to be a hearer and a doer. That's what's going to make those things line up. And then he brings in, in verses 22 to 25, this brilliant illustration. I mean, it's so simple. It's a mirror. And it's so profound because the implications are astounding when you begin to think them through. And James tells us this word that you're going to humbly yield to in meekness receive is the mirror. It's the word of God and it is a mirror to our soul. It's a mirror to our lives. And it tells me the truth. This is the hallmark of a mirror. This is why he picked this illustration. Mirrors tell the truth. Mirrors tell the truth. And I don't always want the truth. I have trouble sometimes seeing the truth, and, and, and I don't want to be sexist, but I, I, I think that it, maybe if I can make a generality, men are, are, are that rare breed that can be middle-aged with a pot belly and balding and look in a mirror and go, I'm still God's gift to women, right? Because, because what happens is we don't want to receive the truth. We have to be willing to humbly receive the truth because the mirror doesn't lie. And James's point is... I have to have the mirror in front of me constantly, constantly telling me the truth because I have a tendency to lie. I have a tendency to exaggerate. I have a tendency to not believe the truth about me. And so what is he saying? We get that mirror, we see the truth, and then we act on the truth. We have to act on it. And so then a changed lifestyle comes out of this radical new understanding. And, and I said this last week, Scripture always says something about us. Scripture always says, this is what's true about you. Now go act. Go do certain things, whatever. Before Scripture tells us what to do, it always tells us who we are. And James is saying here, we have to be a hearer so we learn who we are. And that leads to being a doer. We can't get that reversed. If we decide we want to be, if, if I say, okay, I need a list of all the things the Bible says to tell me to do, it will kill me. I can't do it. It will overwhelm me. I won't be able to do it. But if I say, what does the Bible say is true about me? And then even as some of the things we've sung, and then I realize the God of the universe loves me dearly. He loves me dearly. He loves me enough to send his son to die for me. The God of the universe says, I am now his child. I am an heir to the king. I am an heir to an incredible, eternal kingdom. So now as I do, somebody, somebody, um, somebody cuts me off in traffic and tells me I'm number one. I'm number one, right? And do, so what do I do? I get mad and I yell back. And no, I think, wait a minute. In light of what I've just been thinking about, I'm the heir to an eternal kingdom. Is this important? And it helps me see it. It's not important. It helps me change what I do. So true religion, James tells us in, uh, in chapter 1, is being comes before doing. All right? And then he talks about you know, how the things that it affects. It affects your speech. It affects how you deal with the least of these. It affects your personal conduct, your personal holiness. And so now we come to... Um, James chapter 2, the very beginning of James chapter 2. And I'm going to talk about this. He's going to talk about the sin of partiality. And that my first point is the what. What's going on here? What is the important thing he's saying? And he says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you sit down by my feet. What is he saying now? He's telling them, this is what you've done. He says, I, this is the what. You are not to show partiality to people. No discrimination. 
Now, to understand what he's saying, we've got to get the context a little bit because the context of that day and time is different from the context of our day and time. We, we have a church that is, is pretty casual in, in its atmosphere. And so we could easily say, oh, well, we don't do that. We don't do that. We know somebody comes in with a coat and tie and we give them the, the nicer seat and somebody comes in in shorts and a tank top and we push them off. You know, we, we don't do that. Right? So, so we would think maybe this, but let's look at the context and think about how people operated in that day. What did they think? What did they believe? All right? Because James is using something that they struggle with. What we struggle with may be different, but James is talking about something they struggled with and struggled with very differently. We, and, and for us, the hard work then becomes, what do we struggle with? We have to think that through. But in those days, especially in Jewish thought, there was the idea that if you were rich, you were blessed by God. God was showing favor. God was smiling at you by blessing you with riches. You must be a good person. That was the thought process. That was automatic. Something you've done or something your parents have done, God is blessing you for that. And that's how that was. Re- so if you're rich, it's because you're blessed. If you're poor, it's the exact opposite. You did something wrong. Or your parents did something, or your grandparents did something wrong. You're in this difficult situation because of some sin that you've committed. That's what everyone thought. We don't necessarily think that way, but we've got to kind of try to get ourselves into their thought process so that we can understand. And it, it's very, it comes up a number of times in Scripture. One of them is in John 9-2. It's not on your screen or anything, but in John 9-2, if you remember, Jesus walking along with his disciples, and they come across a blind man. And what do his disciples say? They say, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? Do you see what was automatic in their mind? Their first thought was, somebody is at fault for this. Who sinned? Right? That's their automatic. And it's so interesting to me, Jesus, who has at that point done healings, didn't come up and say, Jesus, here's a blind guy. Can you, are you going to heal him? This is awesome. Are you gonna? No, that didn't even, they, they didn't even start there. They started with, who's at fault for him being blind? And of course, Jesus says, no, no, that's not how it works. That's not the point. But that's what they believed. So you have to understand, in this mindset, in these churches that James is writing to, that's the normal culture. That's what people believe. The gods are favoring you if you have money. And if you don't have money or good health or whatever, you're being cursed. You did something wrong. It's your fault. Right? And so that mindset, rich man's a better person, a better Christian, if, if you want to say that. The rich man is the blessed one. Now, we look at that and say, that's ridiculous, right? I hope you're thinking that. But we do that. We do that. One time when I was going through a particularly difficult time, I had a person that I had talked to a little bit. He was not a Christian. And he just said, so what good is it for you to follow God if this kind of stuff happens? If God lets this kind of stuff happen to you, it doesn't seem to be much of a benefit of being one of his children. Right? Because what is he saying? He's saying, if you follow God, then you should be blessed. You should be a step up. You should have money. You should have health. You should have... And that's what the whole book of Job is all about. The book of Job is all about, what if God says, I withdraw all blessings? And Job, the whole point is Job is saying, even without all his blessings, there's still a God, and I will serve him. Right? I, I, to me, this was brought home a number of years ago. I was, I was uh, watching an online sermon by another church. And they were in the middle of a, of a financial a capital campaign. And, um, and so they showed a little video, and it, was, and it was a husband and wife. And in the video, uh, they were saying that the husband had a small business, and it was just falling to pieces. It, was going ter- it looked like he was going to go bankrupt, and his wife was in a job that she hated and didn't make that much money. And they said then they got together, and they decided to start tithing no matter what. So they started tithing, and he, all of a sudden his business took off. She found a better job. Now, this was a video they, they showed to hundreds of people. Now, what is that video saying? That video is saying, you give and you will get. You give generously and God will bless you generously. Now, sometimes that happens. But that's not promised for us. 
That's not, that's not what we, we can stand on. Because what happens to people who give and their, and their income doesn't skyrocket? Well, the implication is it's your fault. You're not giving enough. You must not, you must not have enough faith. You must not be good enough. That's how that works. Now, sometimes what happens? Sometimes people in obedience follow God and God does bless them. But it doesn't always happen that way. And we can't say this because that's what they were saying. This is automatic. And that's how they operated at that time. And that's why Jesus was such a countercultural person. He was such a radical in that culture because Jesus blew things up. I mean, you think about it. To begin with, he came from a humble, poor home. Supposedly a home that has been cursed, you know. And you know, with all the rumors about Jesus, that would have reinforced everything they thought. I mean, people back then knew how to count just like we do, and they would just go, wait a minute, Joseph and Mary got married, Jesus is born. That doesn't happen, right? They knew. So what happens? They say things about Jesus. They say things about his mother, about her morals. And we see that a couple times in Scripture where that stuff is, is mentioned or alluded to. And so they look and they, and so, and so what happens? So Jesus shows up and he's not supposed to be one of the elite. And then he starts doing things like, you know, we, we, we read this all the time and talk about this. They say he eats with sinners. He spends time with sinners. And, you know, we, we think, well, okay, that's whatever. Doesn't seem that devastating, but it's a devastating charge in that culture because he's spending all this time with the people who've been cursed by God. They deserve what they have. That's what they're saying. They're saying, look at them. He's not, he's not holding them accountable to the fact that they are obviously sinful people. And eating together in those days was considered an intimate, even a sacred thing. And so it meant acceptance. It meant closeness. And Jesus is totally turning things upside down in that culture. He is ripping it to pieces. And so you can see why the elite don't like him. Because he's the whole time saying, I want to spend time with... And they're like, you should be spending time with us. We're the big smokes around here. You should be... We're the ones God loves the most. Why do you want to spend time with them? He, he hates them. And so he holds up the culture to that mirror, the Word of God, and allows the Word to speak truth to the culture. He holds up the status quo to the Word and lets the Word speak truth to the status quo. And what's lacking in it. And he still does that today. This is something we need to be involved in. Because we need to think about our culture. You know, what does the word condemn about our culture? And it's easy, it's easy to pick the, the simple things, you know. It's easy. I've worked with youth for a long time. You know, you would ask something like that and they would say, oh, adultery and drunkenness and murder, you know, those are, that's the low-hanging fruit. But what about our culture does the word condemn that maybe we can struggle with? Because I think about things in our culture. Our culture is a culture that mocks. We have easily, uh, in this day of, of the, the internet and social media, our culture is a culture that mocks people. You see this on Facebook. You see it on Twitter. You see it all the time. It humiliates people. It speaks, it speaks evil about people all the time, very flippantly. And I think when I see that, I, I, just, I go right to Proverbs 6. God says there's six things I hate, and then he says, no, wait, there are seven things that I hate more than anything. And one of them is murder, but three of them are sins of the mouth, about people who run quickly to lies, about people who spread, who spread not even, they're not necessarily lies, but they just gossip and they pull other people down. People who through their talk spread dissension among other people. God says, I hate that. And that's something our culture is huge on. It happens all the time. And God says, not for us it shouldn't be. We shouldn't be enjoying that. And so we look at the people who are here. We have, first of all, the, the rich man. Literally in the Greek, that word means gold-fingered, right? And anyone who's older, does that ring a bell, right? That's James Bond, and that is Arius Goldfinger from the James Bond movies, and it doesn't ring a bell, so don't worry about it. Here's the rich man. That's how he's dressed. His dress shows who he is. 
right? His clothes, and, and, and the word fine literally means shiny or bright. It's this idea of ostentatious. It's this idea of his clothes declare who he is. And he's important, and he shows it, and this would be typical of how they would dress. He's important, and he shows it by the way he dresses, by the rings on his finger. He has influence. He has power. And it's obvious because that's how he's clothed. And so maybe in our days, you know, we use, uh, we have social cues that tell us we are or how important we think other people are. We have social cues that, that say, this is my glory. This is, this is how I project myself. And for some, it's as simple as the car they drive or maybe, maybe it's the level of education or the, the place where they work or the size of their bank account. I mean, it can go on and on. The material goods they have, the knowledge, the titles. For some, it's how well their kids are doing, and it becomes something that becomes their glory. And for every one of us, for each person here or online, in your particular area of work, in your particular area of school, in your neighborhood, in your circle of friends, there are ways that people show, sometimes obvious and sometimes subtle, there are ways that people show they are special. They're special. Because our culture is this culture of pride. And so we see other people and we feel like, oh, that person, has less, that person is less important, less influence. And it's shown in this illustration by its clothes. I want to show you this is, this is a woman, but this would be typical, simple dress in that day. You know, you'll see it's, it's mainly kind of a burlap material, and then it has a little bit of a, hopefully a soft material underneath so it isn't so rough on the skin. And that's very typical of what a poor person would wear. And so when we look at this and then we look at this, they declare something. Who's important, who's not? Who's special, who's not? And so, we, and so James is telling them, how do you treat them? How do you treat this, this man? How do you treat this woman? One is shown deference and respect and the other is not shown deference and respect. And here's the thing. It's not that the poor person's being treated badly. That's not necessarily what's going on here. It's just not at the same level. In fact, the poor person is being treated the way they would expect they they should be treated. In fact, probably in many cases, the way they would say, yeah, I deserve to be treated that way. I am not a blessed person. I deserve it. And so, what are they doing? They're saying, you, you, you stand over here, or you sit at my feet. And they say, oh, well, you come on up. You move to the, here's a nice seat for you. And the word, he says, you pay attention to one and not to the other, is, means to look upon them with favor, to act in a favorable, favorable way. And I think what can happen to us sometimes is we, we, we say, well, that person expects to be treated that way. It doesn't make it Right? Even if they've fallen for the culture's idea on what's right and what's wrong, it doesn't make it right. You know, we say here at First Church, we say everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything is possible when God is involved. And I think the churches James is writing to would probably agree with us on that. They would agree on that. They're saying we're not turning people away. This person is more blessed of God. We should acknowledge that. And I think subtly in that, and this is what happens at churches and can happen with pastors, you know, they look and they say, well, he's got money and we're trying to raise funds. Let's make sure he's happy. And we're not turning her away, but I mean, the offering plate's not going to get anything in it when it goes by her. And so we can subtly begin to fall into these traps. And instead of thinking for each person, the reason that person is here is because God directed that person here. They begin to show partiality. They begin to, to make distinctions. They begin, they begin to discriminate. One of the things that I try to do, especially you know, before COVID-19 when we, were, when we were meeting, was I tried to remind myself every Sunday morning that if someone new has showed up at our church, it is because God orchestrated and arrange for that person to be here. I mean, everybody who comes, I believe that about, but for someone new, that's a, such a huge step. And so I, I, wanna, I wanted to think in my mind, this, this person, the, you know, I see someone, uh, a, a, a lady I don't recognize, and I would just go up and say, is this your first time? 
because what am I thinking? I want to think. I want to think. This person, God orchestrated this person to be here. Is this your first time? And we and talk a little bit and be saying, I am so glad you're here. I am so glad you're here. Why? Why? Well, how am I going to treat somebody that God invited? Right? I'm going to treat them right because I got to understand that's what God is doing there. And I, and I can struggle with this just like everyone else can. You know, maybe uh, uh, talking to someone in the back, someone who, who's new. And I say, good to have you. It's great that you're here. Blah, blah. And they say, well, you know, this is what happened. And, blah, blah, blah. and then I start thinking, wow, I just wanted to welcome them. I didn't want to have a long conversation. And I got a lot of things going on. And so I do, I can do this easily like many people do. I'm talking to that person and I start turning a little bit. And oh, really? Yeah, no kidding. That's amazing. That's such a cool story, bro. And, and, um, just, and I can, what do I do? I, I, I stop squaring up. I stop necessarily because I'm telling that person. What am I telling them? What you have to say is not that important. I got other things to do. That's why I'm moving away from you. And I can treat them in a way that I don't think is pleasing to God. Because, I mean, if I said to someone, if I said to someone, who invited you to come? And they said, God, God invited me to be here. I mean, you know, I'd be like weird flex, but that's okay. I mean, it's a little different, but, but I'd be like, wow, if God really invited this person, if I really believe that, how am I going to treat this person? I'm not going to do this. Oh, wow, that's really cool. And start moving away. And so he's telling them you can't treat these people differently. You can't judge a person by their outward dress. In the first verse, he says we can't show partiality. And what I love about this word partiality, uh, it's prosopolimpsia, and, and, and what it is, is is he takes the word partiality and he puts it in the plural. It, it does, it's like it doesn't all exactly make sense if you read it grammatically, but what is he saying? He's saying, I'm giving you an illustration, but that's not the only thing. Don't just focus on that. Partiality can show itself in many different ways. And so this idea of favoritism, this idea of being discriminating is, is in the plural. So he's saying there's a lot of different ways of doing this. So James is using this illustration, but he's saying there's any, any type of discrimination is out of bounds. You know, back in the early 20th century, um, um, a, lot of, a lot of educators, a lot of writers and, and, and thinkers really believed that we were going to educate us ourselves out of discrimination, out of war, out of hatred, out of, I mean, they, that just was this, this kind of idea that education is going to get us to that level. And now we know that, ha- you know, early 20th century, World War I and World War II were big problems with that thought process. Uh, and we've realized that is not exactly why, because it's a matter of the heart. We can educate, but if the heart doesn't change, people will still do these things. And so we have to understand, we want, our, we, we want our heart to change. Because we have to think, are there people that make you, make me feel uncomfortable? Are there people that you're distrustful of? Do some people make you distrustful? Do you look down on some people? Are you less respectful to some people? Now look, if you have someone who's broken trust with you a number of times, being distrustful is not unnatural, it's the natural, it's the right thing to do. But I find many times for me, it's just I see someone, and I'm not sure what I think. We ran into this. Um, when we first moved here, we ran into this. Uh, there were woods over there, and, and there were some homeless guys living in the woods, and they, they started coming to our church. They were our closest neighbors. They started coming to our church, and, uh, and people got upset and weren't sure what to do. And... and uh, um, I called, I called the Newport News Police Department and the lieutenant who kind of is in charge of the homeless program for Newport News Police, anyways, he came and talked to me. I said, I, I need advice on this because there's some moms that are worried. And, uh, and so we talked for a little bit, and basically he just said, Bob, you know what, they do not need to be worried about the homeless guys because homeless guys get away with nothing. Every store they go into, they're followed and watched. Everywhere they go, people notice them. Their clothes make it obvious uh, they're unkempt, you know, they're just so many different ways. And, and he was saying they get away with nothing because no one trusts them. Whether they deserve trust or not, no one trusts them. And then it was interesting because he, he looked at me and he said, Bob, mothers of young children, you know who they need to be worried about? And I said, okay. He said, people who look like you and me, middle-aged white guys, 
That's where the problem is. That's who they need to worry about. And those are exactly the people we weren't worrying about. But we were scared to death about some homeless guys. And, and God, brought a, as a congregation, brought us around on that and did some incredible things that I'm very, very excited about what God has done in the past in this. But, but what was it? We, we naturally assumed something. We discriminated. We showed partiality because we assumed off the bat what the problem was going to be. And it turned out the problem wasn't what we thought it was going to be. So that basically is the what. The second thing is the why and the how. He says, brothers, show no partiality to those who hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and I love this, the Lord of glory. All right? And, and, and uh, let me see here. Oh, here it is. This, is. this is it literally in the Greek. Not with partiality of any sort must you hold the faith of Jesus Christ, who is the glory. And that, that last part is a very powerful statement. Christ is the glory. Because as soon as he says glory, you know his Jewish readers are going, Shekinah? The Shekinah glory of God? And he's saying, this is what I'm talking about. James is not just saying, don't discriminate, don't show partiality. He's emphasizing something. He's emphasizing glory to them. In the Old Testament, the word for glory is, is kabod. It's this idea of, of weight. It's this idea of heaviness, uh, an idea of ultimate importance. And, uh, and, and glory has this interesting idea that it's, it's weighty, that it's heavy. And the Shekinah glory, Moses said, let me see your glory. And God says, my glory, no, you can't see my glory. It will crush you. It will crush you. And so you hide your face as I pass by because greater glory crushes smaller glory. A few years ago in our backyard, the glory of one of our chairs could not stand up to the glory of me and because uh, greater glory crushes smaller glory. And I was greater glory, especially then. And so, and so what, what, what is he saying here? He's, he's trying to get us to think about this. We all want glory. We all want to matter. To not matter is the worst thing that can happen to a human being. And so what do we do? We accumulate wealth and say, I matter. We accumulate, we build things. We strive for things to, in an effort to matter. We name buildings after, after ourselves in, a, in an effort to matter because no one wants to be forgotten. No one, no one wants to not matter. And in Matthew 7 to me, this is some of the most haunting words in the Bible. Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. I do not know you. I'm going to ignore you. And suddenly people will be faced with a prospect that the only being in the world that matters will not know them, will ignore them. And it's a horrifying thought. And James is saying, you cannot have partiality because you have Jesus who is the glory and if you want to know the wisdom of God, the mercy of God, the love of God, you look at Jesus because he is God's glory. The rich man, he declared his glory through his rings and through his clothes, through his position. God declares his glory through Jesus. Um, let me see here. I want to look at one of these. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for your sake, he became poor, so that by you his poverty... Might become you by his poverty might become rich. What is he saying there? He's saying we get the glory. Jesus came and gave of his glory, so that we who have lost our glory through through sin can regain it because of what he did on the cross. And so we have his glory, we have his presence, we have his life, we can forever live with him. And so James's argument here, you begin to see it here, is how can we discriminate? How can I, he says, Bob, how can you discriminate? You were without glory. And Jesus died for you and miraculously saved your soul. Now you have glory. And how can you now treat someone else as a lesser? Because you only have it. Because he gave it to you. Finally, the danger here. He says, have you then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. Have you not then, he says, you're making distinction and you're becoming judges with evil thoughts. And what is James saying here? He's saying, well, there is a judge. His name is God. That's his job. It's not your job. 
And so when you see a poor person or a rich person, when you see a couth person or an uncouth person, when you see a pleasant person or an unpleasant person, when you see a black person, a white person, an Asian, a Native American, a person you agree with or a person you don't agree with, and we could just keep going on and on and on, but when you see a person, you don't know everything about that person. You don't know how they grew up. You don't know their secret fears. You don't know their secret joys. You don't know the things. You don't, you don't know their genetic code. You don't know anything, relatively speaking. You may know a person for a few years, but relatively speaking, you know nothing about them. You cannot judge them. Only God can. Why? Because God knows how they grew up. And God knows their secret fears and their secret joys. And God knows their genetic code. So he knows exactly what's right and fair. And we don't. And so he's saying here, he's saying, you have become the judge when you do this. When you treat someone, when you look down upon someone, you have become the judge. And you have said, God, get off the throne. I can fit there better than you can. Everything that contributes to how a person behaves is more than we could fathom, but God knows it. And that's why he's the judge and not us. And so he's saying, do not, do not let yourself get into that position of making judgments about people and their motives. Now, it doesn't mean someone does something that's wrong. It has to be dealt with. I mean, that's understood. But we have to be careful in extrapolating, well, this is why they did that. This is, this is just a bad person. This is, we have to be very careful about that because we don't know. We don't know. And we don't know exactly everything that has gone on in their lives. And so James is saying from, from chapter 1, he's saying being comes before doing. You have to understand who you are before it works out on a daily basis in your life. And so we go to the Word because the Word tells us who we are. And he says you become a hearer, listening to the Word, and then a doer. But the listening and being comes first. We don't get that reversed. That's very important. And then at the very end of chapter 1, he gets real specific. He says, look, the being, since you got the mirror in front of you, now here's how it works out. Here's how it works out in your speech. Here's how it works out when you deal with the least of these. Here's how it, here's how it works out in your personal, you know, your, your, your personal salvation, your personal life, the personal you, the secret things that no one else knows that pe- we think we can get away with. And he's saying, no, no, keep yourself unstained from the world. And then, we've, it's been personal, and now he says now, as a body of believers, no distinctions no partiality. This is sin. This is wrong. And James is echoing all the way back. All the way back in Leviticus, God says, don't, I don't treat the rich person with, with extra favors, and I don't treat the poor. I treat everybody the same, God says. Everyone is treated the same because I am God. I am God, he says. And now James is taking that thought and saying, okay, here's how it works out in our lives as we deal with people. We're all going to leave this place. People who are watching at home, at some point, as things open up more and more, we're going to be out and, out and about more and more, and, and we're going to begin to deal with people. You're going to deal with those people. That, that's, it's been three months, and you've forgotten how annoying they were. And now it's like coming out with, no, okay, I realize now this is a person created in the image of God. They deserve a certain amount of respect. They deserve a certain, am- a, a, a certain amount of grace in their life just because they're made in the image of God and it's my duty to treat them that way. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time. Thanks for how much you love us. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of the Word of God. Thank you that Jesus is the Word. And now as we have this written Word, it's a mirror that shows us the truth about ourselves. So help us to be faithful in going to the mirror and help us then to work it out in our lives as we treat people the way you want them to be treated. We see that in Jesus. Even even the worst of people, he treated with grace and love. Lord, help us to be that way. Help us to love even our enemies in a culture and in a nation that is so divided by hatred. Lord, help us to be the ones that stand in the middle, that bridge the gap and show love to both sides of the equation. 
and become people who are known for that. Help us not to be the mockers and the scoffers and, the, and those that hurt others, but to be the, the ones who love and the ones who show grace and the ones who forgive. And Lord, as we do that, your kingdom will flourish and grow because you've decreed that. And so in obedience, we hear and obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us online. Thanks for everybody here. It's great to have you.